The Money Podcast with your hosts, Justin Harrison and David Bester. Money, 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 money. Let's talk about money. Today, we have got a real rock star joining us. Ari Pinar is a South African entrepreneur who have built and sold two extremely successful companies, most notably WooThemes and Convergio. So he is currently building and scaling his third company called Coxie, and he is a published author as well. So even though Ari has an amazing track record as an entrepreneur, today we want to talk about his relationship with money. Ari, welcome to the podcast. It's great having you here today. Thanks for having me, Bobby. And by the way, nobody has called me a rock star for years. Um, it's always a, a blast from the past when, when someone mentions the, the rock star part. I think we are going to get into that pretty shortly because you have also labeled yourself a rock star. And I also want to know exactly where that's coming from. So for you guys who don't know, Adi and I have a little bit of a history when it comes to the rock industry. I played in a band. He had a record label and he signed us as the first band. So Adi, for people who have never met you, can you sum up your career and then also the most important lesson you have learned in your career? I mean, I think Dawi, the general arc, um, adding just some color to what you shared there was that uh, I studied accounting, Stellenbosch University, that's where I got my start, that's when we met and we did something with, where there was an actual rock star involved, i.e. you guys, not me. Uh, during the latter stages of my final year, uh, doing my honors at Stellenbosch, I built the first product that then became WooThemes and eventually WooCommerce. And then kind of post WooCommerce, I really consider myself a bit of a one-trick pony, right? So post WooCommerce, I moved on to founding Conversia, which was email marketing automation, again, for e-commerce brands. I sold that in 2019 to a company called Campaign Monitor, spent some time with them as part of the transaction, and then found Cogsy, which is inventory management and optimization, again, for e-commerce brands. So when I say uh, one-trick pony, uh, what I mean there is that I, I know how to build software for e-commerce brands or for modern retail brands. Uh, at least, and I've stuck kind of very close to to that space. Um, I think there's many kind of lessons and learnings around that way in terms of kind of how one's thoughts evolve. But I think that kind of one of the values there is kind of accumulating a critical mass in terms of industry experience, right? So being really, really focused on kind of that sector, A. And then B, I think the kind of the network and the relationships that you kind of you build over time. So it's also interesting uh, there that going from Wu to Convergio, Wu was bootstrapped, Convergio raised a small amount of funding. And with Cogsy, my latest venture, like we are fully on the venture capital path, right? Like we've raised $6 million to date. We're, we've been going for about 18 months now. So like all of those things, I want to say success follows success, but it's, I think it's more relationships. So th that's probably my professional CV, the most important bits. And if you ask me one lesson there, I think the kind of the key thing for me has always been, and one thing that I'm, I'm trying to impart to my kids is is really around kind of your persistence and perseverance. And I use those two things interchangeably. But I often, when people ask me, say, "What I think made me so successful." And I would tell them, I just, I rarely take no for an answer, or I rarely take an unreplied email. Um, and I just accept that as status quo. Like I will continue pushing until I get a no. I can be respectful. I think that there's a kind of a balance to kind of being pushy and being a dick about something. But if you don't ask and you don't put yourself out there, like I don't think you accomplish anything. And I think without this sounding like a humble brag, I, I've, I've met some incredible people in this journey. And much of it has been just me either kind of you know, trying to be creative and forcing an angle into meeting someone or some serendipitous kind of opportunity that popped up because I put myself out there. But it really comes down to persisting and persevering. And I, there's not loads of nuance, 
kind of beyond that, like in terms of also knowing when to quit and not to persevere and persist. But I think as a kind of a core lesson there is people, I think human beings underestimate the amount of momentum and power you can generate by just being persistent and just persevering for long enough. I think that's such a great point. You know, we've got this funny little saying in our lives, uh, Darwin and I talk about it a lot. It's a phrase that I coined years ago, persistence sterilizes resistance. It's kind of how we live our lives. We we believe that uh, if you keep pushing, you'll eventually break down all the walls. Um, so I'm interested to know, because obviously a lot of what you've been talking about now hinges on your professional career. You've been talking about the fact that, you know, you've got all these startups that you've been involved with raising venture capital. You also touched on the fact that, you know, you, you've studied accounting. I'm interested in your personal wealth journey. I'm interested in your money journey. Is money and wealth something that you have always focused on early on in your life? What is your earliest memory of wanting to create wealth? Where did this start? I guess the, just in the roots are, um, my dad was, since kind of a, the moment in time that I was old enough to understand a bit about life, my dad had his own businesses, right? And he was an entrepreneur um, in his own right, um, combining, like he had a, before the big box kind of computer hardware retailers, he had a your typical kind of mom and pop shop, but he specialized in network installation and then accounting systems on top of that. Um, hence, hence the kind of a, the short path to me studying accounting, but that's a different story. And I I think I can, kind of the, the first exposure I had to money was how my dad would talk about money. And I, I would remember like doing, say in early high school, I would do holiday work for him for a bit of extra pocket money. And some of the holiday work would literally be in pastel accounting software, right? Um, and just capturing source documents for him. But then what he would do is I would ask him sometimes, like, why does this invoice look different to this one? It's the same company, different things. And he would explain, start explaining these kind of your business concepts kind of to me. And that was such a great way for me to, I think, start my relationship with money at least, right? Like almost kind of normalizing this ability to be able to talk about, hey, this why is this invoice 50,000 Rand and this is only 500 Rand, right? Like and not saying, oh, these are not things for kids, right? So I think like that's definitely the, the first note there. And that's something that I've... I carry that with me to today. And if I speak about my kids, for example, like it's something that I try and do with them as well, like really normalize the ability for human beings to be able to speak about money, not in a way that is either selfish or kind of, um, you know, arrogant in a kind of a, a bragging manner, but in a way to like numbers are numbers to some extent, right? Like the context is important. So that's the first part. But then I think the the part that really really kind of you know, accelerated my path to entrepreneurship was reading Richard Branson's first book. So I read, I can't remember in which order I read them, but I essentially read an autobiography and a biography of his. And that really set off the motions. I mean, Davi, you touched on how we met, right? Like I think those early years of entrepreneurship, that's why music and the idea of starting a, a record label was very prevalent. I mean, I, I was essentially pattern matching to a mentor, like a, a, I, I use air quotes here for anyone that doesn't see the venue, but a mentor of mine, like the early days of kind of your 80, the entrepreneur was very like highly influenced by Richard Branson. I think for those first couple of years, I tried to read absolutely everything that I could find about him because I just found him to be a fascinating individual. Um, a little bit of rebellion, a little bit of naughtiness, but then just that huge ambition, I think is something that really resonated with me. I believe that book is Losing Your Virginity, right? That's one of the first two, yes. There's like, but yes, that's the book. Funny, that was also one of my first books um, in entrepreneurship that I read. It's, it's a very cool book. Um, he's got some really, really interesting stories. 
Exactly right. And I think like at that earlier stages, like stories matter, right? Like regardless of whether it's just kind of your business stories, but stories matter. Like if you, if we have a look at kind of, you look at cave drawings of whatever tribe, whether it's in South Africa or elsewhere, like stories have always mattered. The way that we as humans pass along stories is an integral part of our evolution, right? Like that's the way we, we learn. That's the way we improve upon previous generations. So I think the ability to read the stories of successful people whether they're kind of business people or otherwise like is an incredible way to learn to upskill yourself and to, like maybe or just to figure out like what i want to do next right like it's a because you can kind of remix all of these little bits and then decide like this is how i'm gonna chart my my career path here or just my life so speaking about stories, I actually did read your um, latest book, Life Profitability. So I, I read all your stories about business. It was really cool seeing the business side of things and how you went from WooCommerce to Conversio, et cetera. But I want to go back to the personal side of things, you know. What has been the biggest mistake you have made with money and what exactly did you learn from that? I would probably say that um, like financially, one of the bigger mistakes um, was not in an individual decision, but in a season of life where I made similar decisions that amounted to to big financial losses and thus big lessons, right? So post, just after I exited from, from WooCommerce, I had a, a nice financial exit, nice kind of windfall essentially. And I got very romantic about this notion of being an angel slash strategic investor in other things like adjacent to this kind of your space that I thought I understood. And I think, I think I made all the mistakes, right. In terms of, especially with angel investing, right. In terms of the kind of the discipline, not getting romantic about things, et cetera. And where it ultimately came down to for me was um, the timeliness of it was of such a nature that it was too late for me to apply it to myself. Like I, I had to realize those losses and then I could apply it later in my life. But the, the advice I got was the following and I'll, share the story. I was sitting down with a gentleman and he shared how he would spend four, five, six million dollars on an antique Ferrari. And then he would refurbish it and he would resell it. And I looked at him and I was like, that sounds like an incredibly risky kind of investment or business. And he said, Eddie, it's not risky because I truly understand the market and I'm highly disciplined. And he said, the key thing is it doesn't matter in which asset class you invest as long as you understand that asset class intimately. And that word, he specifically used that word intimately, which was such a fascinating um, kind of word. And it's, I think, if I look back at that season of life, like I thought I understood the space intimately because I had had one success in the space and I had not yet stress tested my own ability to replicate my understanding to adjacent kind of or other businesses in, in that space, right? Like I didn't yet know that space intimately. Hence why it took me, I mean, this is, I'll uh, like give you a time horizon as well. This is 2014. And it took me seven years after that before I made my next angel investment, uh, for example, where I felt confident enough and I felt like, I think I now know more. Like whether I'm expert level or not, like that's TBC in terms of kind of future investment returns at this stage. But I at least like, I knew at that stage that if the bar was, you know, do I know the space intimately? compared to back then, then the answer now is yes. And I can now confidently go out um, and I can upskill myself as a kind of investor or a kind of manager of, you know, wealth to some extent. 
Yeah, I mean, it's such a great response. And I think experience is is one of those things that you just can't discount it. You know, we always say that you can read so many books, but at the end of the day, you have to learn from the, the school of hard knocks. So, you know, talking about the, the school of hard knocks, I mean, obviously now we're talking about those hard lessons in life, but what is the single best decision you've ever made when it comes to money personally? And what is the, the big take home that you've taken from that? So it's going to sound like a self-fulfilling prophecy, but um, the best financial decision I've ever made was backing myself, right? So I mentioned earlier that I built the first product, it became WooThemes and then WooCommerce. Uh, in my final year at varsity, I remember the launch date was 2 November 2007. And a month or so before that, I had taken a job to start that January. I was doing uh, business management honors and I was going to do my my articles for for the SEMA professional qualification, right? And so I had taken a job and I started there after the summer holidays, right? After the December holidays in early Jan. It was a great gig. Like they, it was a progressive company, big company. I think they had six, 700 people at that stage, but not too big. I was heading up their new media division in Cape Town. I was the only person in the vision as well, but that was them essentially investing and saying this year, like we we need a young person. I wouldn't call myself a futurist, but an early adopter of technology to drive the company forward. So it was a great kind of um, opportunity. And my salary at this stage is like, we'd obviously done comparison with our peers and, and our honors, honors class. And like I had far exceeded what anyone else was going to earn. And I got there and um, six weeks in, I was essentially making the same money on the side from this product that I'd launched for, for WooThemes and I was from the company. And I actually sat the CEO down. I said, listen, you're like, this is a coincidence. This was not a plan, but you've asked me to find something that will push you forward. Here's evidence. Um, why don't we bring this thing in-house, right? Like you back it, you staff it, you capitalize it. You, we can figure out some kind of incentive for me, um, whether it's a small equity share, whether it's profit sharing, doesn't matter at this stage, but this is a great opportunity. And he he looked at it and he said, you know what, AD, anyone can put numbers on a piece of paper, which was a very interesting reaction, I thought, from him. And I think the context there, by the way, is that at that stage, I had forecasted or projected out uh, annual turnover that we ultimately reached in a single month, like six months after that, right? So he was right. Anyone can put a numbers on a piece of paper. He was just wrong about the direction in which this move. And to this long-winded story, but after having that experience six weeks in, I sat my dad down and I said, I'm going to quit my job. And my dad, had, having been his own boss for years, he tried to kind of you know, talk me out of it, right? And he, I remember some advice he gave me. He said, son, just know that if you go down this path, the worst boss you will ever have is the boss you're going to be for yourself, right? I now understand that part as well. He was right about that, but that should not have dissuaded me from, from going on his path. But the point in telling that story is there's no way that my journey would have been the same had I not taken that kind of bet on myself at that stage. There was enough evidence that I could safely, safely, again, air quotes, like everyone will have their own risk appetite. And I'm very risk averse, by the way. Like I think the, the biggest thing that people underestimate about me, they think I'm a massive risk taker. I'm incredibly risk averse. I just understand that you can't do anything meaningful in life without taking risks, right? So I'm constantly in risk mitigation mode. But taking that bet on myself at that stage and then learning from there was integral. And I think at key moments in time, like I did that again. When I left WooCommerce, I did that again. And what most people don't realize is when WooCommerce, after I left, stepped down as CEO, end of 2013, they sold to Automatic 18 months later 
for I and Magnus and Mark, as my co-founders there, have never told me exact amounts of what they sold for. It's orders of magnitude more than what I'd received 18 months earlier for my stake, right? And we were equal partners there. But the key thing again there was that was not the important part thereof. I left because I knew that I had to challenge myself, that I had to figure out how do I build this again. So I backed myself there. And in between, like the story, you gave the highlight there, what parts of the story that my story, at least people don't necessarily you know, put enough emphasis on is between WooCommerce and Convergio, there was a failure, right? Called public beta. And in fact, the holding company or the registered entity that got acquired that held Convergio was still called public beta limited. But again, like at, that, at those crucial junctures in my journey, like I doubled down and I figured out like I have to back myself again, which has always meant like, you take the risk, but then you learn, right? You persist and you learn. You have to learn things. Um, anyway, I can go down tangents here, but I'll pause there. Like Maybe that's not the right rabbit hole to go down today. Yeah, so look, I, th- I think for a person who doesn't understand tech, they don't know all the difficulties that come with that. And you just touched on one as well, um, the failure that you had. You know, not everything is always successes. So talking about tech, I mean, this is something that Justin and I understand as well. We're also in the tech space. And Things go wrong a lot in the tech space, right? But it also goes well a lot. So you you have these big wins, but you also have a lot of losers, you know? But it can be incredibly challenging, especially when certain things pops up. So let's talk about that quickly. What motivates you to keep going whenever your back is like completely against the wall? Because you you talked about that in your book as well, but we want to know personally what motivates you to keep going. Well, um, initially, I think with Wu we didn't have many challenges, right? Like the, the biggest challenge we had was when they, um, the olden days of actually having physical servers with actual providers and the server got hacked and we we lost absolutely everything. And we had to recompile our data sources from third parties. Like it was like for a week, you know, well, for 24 hours, like it was a mess. And then for almost three months thereafter, like the company was a mess. And at that stage, the company was doing multiple million, million dollars in revenue a year, right? So those things were hard, but... We never had significant growth challenges. We never had cash flow challenges. Like so, so we was very different there. And I think if you ask me back then, like this is hindsight. I think the thing that kept me going there was more aspiration and ambition. Right? Like I, there was this goal that I'd set myself. There was a, probably a lifestyle thing. So for me, Wu to that extent was always like, I this is working right now, and I want to level up. With conversion, it became interesting in the sense that I kind of post Wu. I had leveled up my life. I had lost some money as well. And I felt that uh, like I should have been further along, right? Like based on the kind of your trajectory I was at. And then suddenly things start working again. And then I had a, at least on paper, I had a significant asset, right? Like Convergio is worth kind of a theoretical kind of X amount here. I was kind of your sole founder there. Um, upon exit, I still owned 70 odd percent of the company. What does that mean for your lifestyle? Because my income didn't necessarily change at that stage, right? Like it wasn't material. In fact, like I could have probably found a job internationally that would have paid me significantly more. So the thing there was like, mm, I need to land this plane. I need to find a way to kind of you know, get some liquid cash out of this. And then eventually, like if I look at um, kind of your know, big question, like the other way of asking this is like, why after those two successes would I start another company? Then I kind of get into probably more uh, softer motivations, right? So um, for Cogsy, at least I will tell you, it's a big intellectual challenge for me and I want to build a category defining kind of your product there, right? So there's there's part of that ambition, but 
it's more on the, um, I would say for me, more on the softer side. I, I really wanted to kind of you know, build a team again. I, m- I missed having a team. Um, I wanted to challenge myself in terms of uh, kind of the leader that I am there. And I've never been a dictator, but instead of being the leader that's always in the trenches, I wanted to see whether I could flip the equation and be almost a kind of coach or a mentor-like leader that empowers others that are better than him to do things, right? Like I'm just an enabler. I'm just a facilitator. I'm just the one that unblocks certain things, but there's many talented people around me. So it became more around kind of, you know, those things. And then the goal there would be to kind of, can this ripple outwards, right? Like can, can I use this as a kind of a breeding ground or a testing ground to ultimately inspire other entrepreneurs, other people to pursue their goals in a way that I would consider better, right? So something we often speak about in, in business at least is, you know, you touched on my, my book, uh, Davi, um, Life Profitability, but the idea of kind of you're growing a business at all costs, just focus on the top line revenue, like that's not something that resonates with me. In fact, I think you can do that and you can do so many other good things, right? So when we consider what is better for the people involved, for the kind of whether it's the people working within a you know, company or the customers or other stakeholders, society, community as a whole, I just think there's a better. So we kind of get into those almost second order effects here that really intrigues me. And when I orientate myself towards that, then I feel like, well, when things aren't going as well this week, this month, this quarter, and kind of I can't put the wins on the board or the metrics aren't trending up, like those things are still important, right? Because those things matter regardless of the, whether this business succeeds or not. That makes a lot of sense. Now, now, obviously, in building out teams and building out different businesses, you you have to deal with people. You have to deal with the human factor. As much as tech is involved, as much as we all love tech, there's the human factor, right? And so I'm very interested in asking entrepreneurs this question because it, it also requires a certain amount of self-reflection. If you look at the people around you, if you observe yourself, if you observe your journey, what do you believe is the number one skill set that people need in order to make money? Ooh, um, the first thing that comes to mind, just in, um, like impulsively uh, or instinctively, is I, I think communication. If we talk about the ability to make money, um, everything from the first sale is all about persuasion, right? It's not about the product. It's not about who you're speaking to necessarily. It's about the communication, right? And, well, yes, so it, whoever is on the other side of that factors in here like same thing with the product right you need to match that but the way you ultimately communicate there that's the first sale and then everything from there again is communication right like whether it's finding financing right like whatever form of financing you take you're again the ability to communicate and tell a story to investors or funders is critical right um same way as as you scale up and you build a team you need to persuade other people around kind of they should join your journey and here's why they should join your journey the way you collaborate so efficiency eventually it's all like a big part of that is is communication so i think there's no way the, the the ability and communication you can probably break it down but um like i think two things that i would say if anyone wants to refine their skills here is to firstly i mentioned like telling stories i think you'll find like the the most successful entrepreneurs at least are great storytellers as well in their own right, like even Elon Musk, who who may or may not be an alien, right? Like I, I, I'm not sure some, <laughs> sometimes, but he's a great story. Like he's a compelling storyteller, right? So like really storytelling, I think is key. And then the other thing that I think is actually even better skill that everyone can practice, right? Is 
not what I'm doing right now, which is this is live synchronous, you know, off the cuff communication. And this is helpful, but written communication is critical, right? So again, I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat biased. I, I tend to build remote distributed teams, which means asynchronous communication is a key part of what we do for many other reasons. And I like, won't go into them, but the point is if you want to be persuasive, being able to write clearly and concisely, like it's a, it's an immense skill. Like, and again, like anything from an email, right? Like cold email that gets you the attention you need for that first sale to when you're scaling up and you need to write a landing page with copy that's compelling that where you can sell to thousands of people to internal communications to rally a whole team together. So really those two things, like become better at storytelling and become better at writing. Like I can't overstate the benefits that, that flow from being really good at just those two things. Oh, look, I mean, uh, selling is part of life. You know, you always have to sell yourself, whether it be a service you're selling or yourself to your clients or relationships. It's it's always about persuasion and selling. So I guess your wife's pretty happy about that that skill you learned there, right? Well, um, TBC, right? So we're um, at this stage, we're, we're, <laughs> we're, well, we're, we're celebrating our 12-year um, wedding anniversary. So yes, she's happy until now. But I would say the same thing about her, right? Like she also persuaded me to commit to this journey. So yes. Cliché. Since we've touched on your wife now, I want to talk about family and friends because let's face it, a lot changes as you upskill yourself, you know, um, being in the situation you are re working remotely with different teams, the successes you have had. Have that actually changed any of the dynamics with your previous friends or family members or have it not changed? I don't think it's changed necessarily, Dovi. I think um, I'm ultimately who I am, regardless of my success, right? Like the the person that I'm here, like having this conversation is the exact same person that I'm at home um, with my family. It's the exact same person that kind of, you know, has a bribe with, with mates. It's the exact same person that I'm, you know, internally with my team. I may speak slightly different or about different things in those different contexts, right? But it's the same person. So the approach that I've taken is that if anyone else's behavior changes because of their perception of my success, then that's on them. And if it becomes a kind of material kind of friction point, then I think over time I've just gravitated away from those relationships. Not in a way that's where there's a grudge or something, like I've just gravitated away from it. And I think like my, I think my understanding of this has evolved. What I want to say is that what I do out there or my bank balance, like none of those things define me ultimately, right? Like the things that define me are like the, the, the human being that I can be in any moment um, ultimately. And um, I don't think success changes that. So if, if my success changes other human beings to the extent, like there's obviously something, something off there. Yeah, it's something Darvin and I talk a lot about, you know, in teaching people about money and teaching people about wealth. We often talk about the difference between seeking to be rich and seeking to be wealthy. And it's two very different things. You know, rich is about the shiny stuff and, and wealth is about an inner journey. And that's not often reflected in the bank account necessarily. And, you know, this is a very important part of a money discussion because I think people need to understand their internal relationships as well as their external relationships. It's a key part of becoming successful at money. So, you know, talking, talking about attaining success, I'm very intrigued to ask you this question as somebody who's been involved in multiple startups now. And you probably have a, a somewhat predictable answer as an entrepreneur, but nonetheless, I think the listeners will find this very interesting. If you had to lose everything tomorrow and you had to start again, where would you start? How would you get it all back? What would your game plan be? 
I will counter the question somewhat, Justin White, because I think, whilst I think it's a, a helpful thought experiment, I think it's limited. And I'll tell you why it's limited. So back in 2017, towards the end of 2017, um, Converger almost ran out of money. I'd made some financial mistakes in both reporting and my understanding thereof, and it was fully on me. I didn't pay myself that month. I had to lay team members off at that stage. And the first part, at least, of 2018 became an absolute grind. Like I, I remember feeling that I, uh, you know, going to work felt like every single day I was taking a kind of screwdriver to the same screws, and I was trying to turn them and see can I can I eke out another little bit, right? It was just a grind, and mm. it's probably I've never been clinically depressed, but it was probably the most kind of depressed feeling and season ever in my life, and I. Spoke to my therapist at, about it at the time, and I said, "Well, right, like maybe I should just up and leave and sell this thing and get it over with, like pennies on the dollar." And she said, "Why don't you do that?" And I said, "Well, I don't know what I'm going to do next." And she said, "It's going to be very hard for you to be in this moment in time and actually have any kind of clarity about what you can do next." And that's always resonated with me. At least I think when we dream up these how to make these changes, I think one needs to acknowledge that. Whatever, and I'll, I, I will answer your question, Justin, because I think that there is value in that as well. I just wanted to kind of preface it with no plan will survive contact with the enemy. And not because the plan is crap, but I think it's because in this moment, as we are in this hustle, the kind of, there's so many things like drawing in kind of mental, emotional kind of your energy from us that is probably very hard to come up with a great plan um, for doing something else completely, right? So I think that's a preface there. Um, to go back to what I would do, I'll stick to my lane here, right? Which is, you know, you're being one trick pony. I think there are many things that you can do like, with writing these days, right? So the ability, for example, to build an audience, I think like that's where, what I would figure out. So I would, I'd pick an audience for whom I feel I could create content that would be valuable, and I would create the content and I would try to reach them through, you know, through the content. And then yeah. I would try and essentially spark conversations um, and figure out like, is there something that I can build or sell them? Whether it's, and it can, that can be anything like that doesn't have to be technological, but that's, that's where I would, would start. I mean, that's assuming I have no other kind of insights. I mean, I think the best places to, to kind of build a business is where you see a, actual kind of problem playing out over and over and over and you hear people complaining about kind of that problem and not having a solution right mm -hmm. but the way i would try and kickstart um, those conversations to observe that is i would i would start trying to figure out like, can i build an audience here um to have higher quality conversations and even if you don't maybe the content itself like we see this often these days that the content itself is the product that you can actually monetize maybe not you can't you know, scale that to be you know, becoming a unicorn necessarily. But if the outcome that I was um, you know, trying to achieve here was just like, can I land back on my feet and can I start something again um, without relying on past assets? Like that's the asset that I would start building. I would start building audience and my reputation again. And that goes back to doing what you love as well, right? Because one of your um, hobbies as well is writing. Exactly right. And I think like, um, that's a good point though. I think I'm a firm believer in the probably the best businesses and i'll use businesses loosely there but the best businesses anyone can start like is you know things that are that has a high overlap with the skills and personality that the founder where we have right so again in tech we often speak about you know product market fit which generally means that you get to a point where 
you've built the product at the market once and you know kind of and they pay for it in a repeatable kind of efficient manner but i also think that there is kind of you know founder or entrepreneur market fit i don't think every Every person on this earth that has the say same intellectual capacity as a Elon Musk should go out and kind of you know, build rockets that goes to Mars, right? I don't think that's the the goal there. I think you have to find those ideas that that really energize you, and you, you need to find the ideas that you can build feasibly as a human being, right? Like I am never going to. I am just not passionate about rocket science. I'm not going to sit down and study the work to you know, kind of do that. Could I lead a company as big as Elon Musk? Maybe, right? I would back myself to do that, but I can't do that building rockets, right? So like, those are the kind of things that I think we as individuals need to take stock of. Like, what do we have today? And like, I think those are assets as well, whether it's skills, whether it's experience, your characteristics, like all of those things are kind of the building blocks that you should put into whatever the next kind of you know idea or initiative is that you're going to take on. Yeah, I think that's some good advice there. So I want to know, obviously, as we're ending the this podcast, getting to uh, getting to the end, do you have any financial advice or, or your number one piece of financial advice that you can give people? Because we've talked about the business and you've obviously been involved with raising capital, selling companies, but when it comes to your personal life, what is the number one best piece of advice that you can give, give people? Hmm. So the most generic part is is probably I, I I am and I've contradicted this myself so often, um, but I I keep it in mind because I think it's being aware of it and pursuing it at all times is that is also just part of the process. But diversification, right? I think really diversifying the kind of just the portfolio that you have, right? Like regardless of asset class, like I'm not. I'm by no means a, a financial advisor there, but I think constantly thinking through the lens of diversification and doesn't matter how you want to slice and dice that, there's different ways to slice. Like you can be all in on public equities, for example, and just consider like different geographies, different verticals or sectors, right? And that's diversification as well. Like there's many different opinions, but I think just the, the notion of diversification and pursuing that I think is, is helpful. And then probably two other things that I like to think through is thinking through both uh, kind of a think through investment horizon and returns, right? And um, especially kind of the balance between any kind of more periodic kind of your actual free cash flow versus things that kind of your return, a, kind of your, a capital or have a, has a bigger capital return in the longer term. I think those are helpful. And as I've gotten slightly older, I'm only 38. That idea of having some kind of asset that throws off money on a regular basis, it is highly desirable. And then for anyone listening starting out i think when you're young i'm not a financial advisor these are all opinions and like these are things that have worked for me like i've never had a retirement annuity like i i used that money and i backed myself right that that's what i what i did but the point that listen there is i think when you are younger that's when you should take some chances as you get older like risk after like your ability to recover from taking a few fuller swings is less right and i know this um, I know this about my own risk appetite. As soon as I had kids, for example, my risk appetite ratcheted down. If you want to take a few bigger bets, take them when you're younger, even when the absolute kind of capital that you can pour into something is smaller. But take the bigger bets, possibly has an outsized kind of your financial outcome. Hopefully, at least it has an outsized kind of outcome in terms of your learning um, you know, ability. So there's some, I, I wouldn't even call it advice. I mean, those are just all opinions.
No, I think those are great points. Now, Adi, obviously, um, we've started this podcast to inspire South Africans. It's a very, very, very difficult time for people all around the world, but especially here in South Africa. So any final words uh, to inspire South Africans, young and old? I'll preface this um, by saying that my business has always been focused on international markets, right? So I don't necessarily connect as much with local entrepreneurs. But whenever I like, do connect to local entrepreneurs, there's always a vibrance and energy. And I'm always inspired to see there's something unique about South Africa in that sense. You know, especially with young people, like when I go to a group, when I like have a chat with a kind of a group of young entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs at that stage, like I always leave and I feel that, that, that buzz, right? Like of energy. So I think that's fascinating. The, the advice that I would share here is I think South Africa is, and South Africans by, by extension, are in a great position in a low-cost country, i.e. a country with low-cost you know, low relative to standard of living. And I think that there's an opportunity to build global businesses from here, right? Like, I, and I think COVID has accelerated this. Like, if, if I have a look, I'm, I'm fortunate I, I live in a bit of a Cape Town bubble at least, right? But the amount of kind of Europeans that are moving into the city and the kind of the, the, their investment dollars that are flowing into the country is interesting. And I observe this as South African and I think to myself, they're doing this and they're still running their European businesses, but they're doing it from a much bigger cost base. If you can build a business in South Africa and you can serve an international market, your cost base is so much lower, which means you don't have to build a business that does 10 or hundreds of millions of dollars. You can probably do build a great business off of a million dollars a year in revenue, but you have such a low cost base that the profit there is is life-changing, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's the opportunity that's there. I think the key, and I'll end off kind of with saying this, is when we were building WooCommerce, absolutely nobody knew that it was a South African company because it didn't matter. It mm. did not matter where the company was incorporated. It did not matter where I was based. It was just a really good product and people enjoyed using it and they wanted to pay for it, right? And I think like that's the the mind shift that, that, that I would love to inspire for more South Africans, right? Um, and I'm not saying every South African should build a global business there, right? And it doesn't have to be kind of your tech, but I, I'm really curious about... What are the other sectors in this country that we can develop new core competencies and scale you know, for? Like if you think about China, again, like totally different rabbit holes, right? But they've what they've done for manufacturing of goods, right? Like I again I'm no, no expert, but I wonder like what are those industries that we can build true core competencies in South Africa because we have such a low cost basis? And you can serve like any business can be global. It's just about your decision to do so, right? And, and finding a feasible kind of business model. But I think like that's how I would think. Like, think you can always think bigger. Start small, but then think big. Yeah, I love that. I absolutely love that. Well, Adi, thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate it. And uh, you're an absolute trailblazer. We're very proud to see South Africans doing great things on the international scene. Darwin and I always talk about uh, the great South Africans that have that have built businesses overseas. And uh, something that we're extremely proud of and, and we're grateful to have you here spending time with us. So uh, we hope to have you back sometime in the future and we wish you all the best in all your future entrepreneurial endeavors. Awesome. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to The Money Podcast. To get access to our future episodes, please subscribe to our podcast via your podcast app. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel, Global Money Academy.